0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to another podcast from the Practical CMO. Mark Corona, your host. And today's topic, I think, is going to be pretty interesting. And we're going to talk about using intellectual property to enhance your business, particularly focusing on creating competitive value, differentiating your business, and then protecting things that you've developed that you may not think about necessarily as needing protection. So we're going to take this on a practical basis. My guest today is Noel Elfont, who is the principal attorney with General Counsel Practice, LLC. Noel and I have known each other for a couple of years. While I'm a fractional chief marketing officer, you can think of Noel as a fractional general counsel. So he's available to help you sort out some of your intellectual property issues and opportunities. We're going to talk today about intellectual property that you already have in your business and how you might use it to enhance your revenues and profits. And by doing that, creating more competitive differentiation, making your business more attractive to business partners, and potentially enhancing the exit value of your business if you get to the point where you're interested in selling it. You know, today's topic is really driven by the issue that intellectual property is largely unexplored for small and mid-sized businesses, in particular due to a number of myths that exist. One of them is that my business doesn't have any valuable IT. Or a second myth is often that intellectual property costs a lot to file, and it takes a long time to get legal protection. And then there's another myth that even if we got legal protection, it's going to be hard for us to continue to enforce our rights. And then finally, a myth that exists out there is that intellectual property protection is a strategy for large companies only. So Noel and I are going to do our best to explode those myths today, try to convince you that intellectual property is a good thing, and sort of take you through a variety of approaches to intellectual property that you can get your hands around that don't cost a lot and that you can move forward with. So Noel Welcome to today's program. Maybe it would help our listeners if you shared a little bit of your background, your professional background.
1: Sure. Thank you for having me, Mark. I went to Northwestern University Law School and began my career in the Corporate and Securities Department at McDermott, Will & Emery, a large international law firm that's headquartered here in Chicago, where I'm talking to you from. After five or six years at McDermott, I moved in-house to a large consumer products conglomerate, Fortune Brands, which at the time owned such powerhouse brands as Jim Beam and Titleist Golf Products and Moen Faucets, Master Locks, Acco and Swingline Office Products. And there was a lot of IP issues for a company like that. I left Fortune Brands and became the first general counsel at Zebra Technologies Corporation, which is a manufacturer of barcoding and scanning technologies, a public company, also a lot of uh, an engineering-based company, so a lot of intellectual property issues came up there as well. And after eight or nine years at Zebra, I moved to become general counsel of a um, of a company called De Laval, which manufactures dairy farm equipment and part of the multi-billion dollar international privately held company, the Tetra Laval Group. And about two years ago, I started my own firm providing general counsel services across a, a wide range of legal issues for small and mid-sized businesses that didn't have the need to hire an in-house counsel and didn't have an interest in paying the $1,000 an hour rates that they were paying to their deal counsel, for example, to do their everyday legal issues. So there you have it. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, Rich background, very relevant to today's podcast, for sure. You know, as you and I talked about this, Noel, um, we thought maybe one way to approach this would be to provide some hypothetical situations that small and mid-sized businesses can get themselves in and then talk about sort of what does it mean what do you do about it you know kind of give some practical guidance not legal advice because we're we're not doing that on today's podcast so we just want to kind of put that that disclaimer out there but um, how do you think about should we take that sort of approach and do some hypothetical case studies so okay let's start with one This is fairly common. I run into this often, and you probably have as well. Entrepreneur, you've developed a startup. Obviously, you know, your husband being your cash, you're trying to do it on a shoestring budget. You've created a new product. You've developed a process for reducing manufacturing costs. You paid an art student a few hundred dollars to create a product name and a logo. And you think you're the first ones in the market with a high margin product that consumers love. Sales are good, your company is hot. So, you know, what's the problem?
1: Well, that sounds like an ideal situation for any entrepreneur, but what happens if your manufacturer decides to drop you as a client and instead decides exclusively to work for a new entrant to the marketplace that is basically selling the same product that you developed and is using the same manufacturing? efficiencies that you helped develop with the manufacturer. And let's say that art student sees your product is pretty hot, sees the logo he or she developed is doing well, and they now are no longer a student. They own a marketing company. It's several years later. And they send you a cease and desist letter saying they own the intellectual property that is personified in that product name and logo. And they seek royalties on all the sales you've made hmm So initially you thought, gosh, this is working really well,
0: right? You know, I got my business going, I got my branding, my logo very inexpensively, the world is looking good, right? And then, you know, a year or two later, things change. Let's start with the product idea that you thought was really unique. And what could or should someone do to protect a product idea that you, that you, cause I mean, you, you know, I mean, everybody likes to think what they've got is unique. Sometimes it really is. Sometimes you haven't done your homework though. And there are other products in the marketplace that are offer similar capabilities, but let's take that piece of it. And then we can come back later and talk a little bit about the branding and the naming and the positioning. So
1: what could I mean, you have oh, done
0: on the, for, to protect your product idea?
1: So, you raise an interesting point, Mark, um, and it's two sides of the same coin. The entrepreneur, if he did, in fact, have a new idea, might have been able to obtain a United States patent on that idea. In the United States, patents are conferred by the U.S. government, and what it basically gives you a 20-year right to exclude everybody else from the marketplace. And how did our entrepreneur obtained a patent on his new product? he would have been able to exclude that new entrant from even entering the marketplace. Now, it could be that the entrepreneur knew about that and just didn't want to take the time and expense to obtain a United States patent. There are other things he could have done to protect his idea. The most notable is he could have tried to maintain it as a trade secret. That does not require any government government, um, imprimatur. And what he needs to do there is have confidentiality agreements with everyone who's involved. The manufacturer could have signed an NDA, but that's not even enough to maintain a trade secret. You also have to have processes and protocols in place, things such as limiting the number of people who have access to the idea, keeping it under lock and key and secure. And if you're able to maintain those practices and protocols, and it require your manufacturer and anyone else who has access to the ideas to maintain those, you could protect this as a trade secret. Yeah, The most notable trade secret out there is the Coca-Cola formula. And that is not protected by a patent. That's protected by trade secret. They keep it under lock and key only a limited number of people have access to it.
0: Okay. So that, that and the KFC secret spices, I think, yeah. are the two that most people are familiar with, right? But, um, so, you know, already I think you've, you've done a lot to deflate the myth that patents are expensive, time-consuming, and that you rarely get them, right? You, you've already provided an alternative path to protecting some of your product ideation, your product ideas, right, um, through okay. trade secrets. It's so even
1: even if you want a patent on the product, it, it, you know, it depends what you consider expensive. It, you might spend, uh, well, it depends on the complexity of the patent, but you could spend as little as $15,000 and pre- pre- probably as much as six figures in seeking patent protection for a product, depending on the complexity of it is it software related. Is it mechanical? And you do need a specialized lawyer to help you prepare the patent and prosecute the patent with the US government. But if your product ends up being a multi-million dollar revenue generator, if it ends up being, you know, like titleless golf balls, you're gonna spend the money and find it as a significantly good investment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, here's the here's the other rub though. If you go headlong into production without Checking the intellectual property rights out there, you might run into a fact that somebody else has a patent on the product, that your product really isn't that new. Our hypothetical didn't touch upon this, but another example could be that your product's doing gangbusters, and then somebody else from across the globe sues you for patent infringement because they have a US patent. Mm-hmm. You, didn't do, you didn't do a preemptive patent search before you launched your new idea. And, you know, you could retain a patent lawyer to do searches for you on a new product idea before you make the investments in tooling and manufacturing costs to make sure that you're not going to run into somebody else's patent where they can exclude you. And mm-hmm. by the way, just because you get a patent, it doesn't mean that there's other, there might be some other patent out there that excludes you from making your product, even if it's patented. So yeah. you, do, you do have to kind of look at both sides of the equation. Does anyone else have a patent and can I seek a patent?
0: Okay. So there was another part of that hypothetical, right? Uh, we talked about you hired an art student to help create your corporate name, your logo, and you know, obviously that was part of your success, right? You really like it, you got a great tagline, your positioning has been very effective. And then you talked about, gee, that art student goes off and founds their own company, right? Their own marketing company and realized, hey, you know, I'm really good at this branding stuff and um, claims that they own your logo, that you don't own it. So how how does one get into that trap or avoid that trap maybe is a better question. This
1: this is very common. People uh, hire someone to do their logo they, they sign a a contract where they pay them $150 to do it or $3,000 to do it. And they also maybe even have a confidentiality agreement where they got to keep everything confidential. None of that gives you rights to the intellectual property that's developed in the United States, the creator of intellectual property owns the intellectual property. Now, For trademarks, let's say the logo is a really cool design, you can get a US trademark, which gives you certain enforcement rights and the right to recover penalties, for example, and sue in federal court. But even if you don't seek a US trademark, even if the art student never filed for trademark protection, there's such a thing as a common law trademark in the US. It gives you all the rights of a trademark owner but it, uh, it doesn't give you certain rights to recover damages or sue in federal court. But you can seek royalties, and you can you know, seek a, a cease and desist. So you might see on, on some products a TM, which stands for trademark, or you might see a circle R. The circle R and the TM both signify that what we're dealing here with is claimed as a, trade, as a Trademark, but the circle R means the U.S. government has issued a registered pa- a trademark uh, for it, mm-hmm. because the TM means it's just uh, you're asserting trademark status under common law without the registration. And even if you don't have either of those marks, if a logo or design becomes affiliated with the source of that product in the minds of the consumer, it automatically gets trademark protection. And that art student, when that happens, when consumers associate the logo that art student designed to the company that the entrepreneur has developed to sell that product, think about the swoosh. Everyone associates the swoosh with Nike or three stripes on a tennis shoe or, or an athletic shoe, people associate with Adidas. So once there's an association in the consumer's mind, That mark is protected, and that art student now can seek royalties for using their work. Now, how could that have been avoided? Very, very easily. But people, entrepreneurs, neglect to to think about this. They tend to always think in terms of an NDA. But you also need language that assigns the intellectual property that's developed by the art student to the person who's paying the art student. Mm -hmm. and it's very common language, very easy to put into a contract.
0: Yeah, okay. So so in our hypothetical example, we've already uncovered, I would call it a category of things that are easy to do, but they're also easy not to do. And if you don't do them, the cost later on could be much, much greater in terms of time and uh, money in terms of sorting out some of these uh, downstream legal issues that could emerge. Yeah,
1: what a great way to put it. Easy thing, things that are easy to do, but easier not to do. They're still easy to do. And once you know about them, it's pretty easy to just put it into a template or make it part of your normal protocol. Okay. Mark, in fact, it might make sense for some, sometimes even with your manufacturers, in your contract manufacturing agreements to put in a clause that says, in the event that the manufacturer develops any new ideas to, ef- to make more efficient the manufacturing process or improve the product, because sometimes in manufacturing a product, they come up with an idea that improves the product. So you might put a clause in there that in the event that they do that, that that intellectual property will be assigned to the company. Okay
0: we've talked about patents. We've talked about trademarks. And I'm just amazed sometimes when I get involved with companies and it's like, you know, well, you guys are doing something really innovative here. Have you thought about patenting this or even, even trademarks, right? I mean, trademarks are even easier, faster, cheaper than patents are. But yeah, sometimes I can't talk companies into um, trademarking their names or their taglines or things like that or their logos. And it sometimes it feels like a real uphill fight to help uh, companies understand why this is important. You, you've experienced that as well.
1: Oh God, yes. I mean, uh, I was in a, a litigation. It turned out it was litigation regarding um, stealing, alleging the stealing of uh, trade secrets, but they also alleged trademark infringement as well. But we were in federal court on the trade secret litigation and they couldn't assert a trademark claim because they didn't file a US for a registration of the trademark. So without a registered trademark, they don't have the right to sue in federal court. So they couldn't they couldn't include that that claim in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the case. One thing I should point out, because I did say that the intellectual property is owned by the creator. There is an exception to that. And that is if you have an employee, not someone, not a 1099 contract employee, that's different. But if you have an employee in your company whose job it is, is to do marketing and develop logos and ideas like this. So it's the work they're doing is within the scope of their employment that would typically uh, inure to the ownership benefit of the company and not the employee.
0: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, a personal example, when I worked as an executive at both um, U.S. Bank in Minneapolis and Deluxe Corporation in St. Paul, my team and I came up with numerous business process patents for new products that we developed, right? And in fact, I think, you know, we had a portfolio because some of the same people worked at both companies. We had a portfolio of 15 or 20 business process patents that were successfully granted. Right. And some we filed internationally as well. And then, you know, when, when the bank was purchased, we had opportunities to kind of go, go do something else and did all those patents were, went back to the bank, right. As their intellectual property. So That's a pretty good
1: example, I think, of what you just talked about, right? Or the company that pays you, yeah. There is a risk that an employee who's not involved in that work, so it's not within the scope of their employment, let's say they're a uh, health and safety executive, so they're really not involved in marketing at all, and they come up with a great idea for your company, there is a risk that that employee would still own the intellectual property and not be required necessarily to assign it to the company. So what should companies do? Another very easy thing to do, Mark, with all new employees, is new employees should have a series of documents that they review and sign. One is a confidentiality agreement. Another is a non-compete agreement. Some, many of which are enforceable in some cases, certainly in Illinois a non-solicitation agreement where they agree if they leave the company not to steal employees or customers. And they should also sign an invention disclosure agreement, which says to the extent they invent anything that's relevant to the company's business, they have to disclose it to the company and assign all rights to it to the company. Mm -hmm. These documents are very easy, simple protocol documents that every new employee should be signing and uh, it's important to get them to sign it when they, upon hire, because then there's consideration for their giving up those rights. That is, you hiring them. Once they're already employees, if you go to them a year later and say, sign these documents, there's an argument that there's no consideration for that since they're already employed by the company. And so many companies, if they do that, would maybe give them a $250 bonus in return for signing the documents. Mm-hmm. I condition next year's bonus on signing the documents. Yeah, yeah. some consideration to allow it to be enforceable.
0: Yeah, yeah. And those, um, you know, those initial letters of employment, I think are really important. And, and like you said, what we're talking about doesn't turn it into a 150-page legal contract, right? I well, mean, you can do this with some very... Okay.
1: It's usually a maybe a four or five page document that has confidentiality, non-compete, and non-solicit all in it. It right. may have the invention disclosure language as well, or you could just have a separate two-page agreement on the invention disclosure mm-hmm. document. Yeah. Very simple stuff that every company should do as a matter of their governance. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And two other things that should be in that letter are a, a, one, a statement that, you know, The employee agrees to use the technology that the company provides, right? So when you try to get your and hire salespeople and you can't get them to use your customer relationship management technology, you go back and say, well, wait a minute, you know, you agreed to use the technology that we provide, not just the email system or internet access, but this too. And that's really important. And the other one I think should go into that employment agreement in today's world is a social media policy, Right. So, you know, you recognize that, yes, your LinkedIn site is your LinkedIn site and your Facebook site is your LinkedIn or your Facebook site, but you have some responsibilities to the company and the company is alerting you up front that, you know, they might monitor your social media posts and things like that. Right. Very, very
1: Very, very true. And regarding the technology use of the company especially if a company is maintaining what we talked about before, trade secrets, where they not only have to have a confidentiality agreement, but they have to have processes and protocols in place to maintain that secrecy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the company's technology that, that kind of builds those practices in and builds those protections in for secrecy purposes as well. And if if the company if the employees refuses to use that technology, they're violating those protocols and put at risk that trade secret. Right. Yeah. Okay. Hey, so, Noel,
0: two other um, questions I want to get into here. One is just go back and sort of reiterate from your experience some examples where you used intellectual property protection and created some business benefit, incremental revenues, um, competitive edge. You know those things. And then I want to talk about how does one approach, let's say, you know, we gave you some ideas here and you're like, okay, I need to know more about this, right? I want to close with some um, practical ideas about how and where you could pursue this. But let's talk about, let's go back and reiterate some of the business benefits that you've seen along the way. And I might chip in with a couple as well.
1: Yeah. So one little short stop before we get there, I wanted to point out, and that is that we talked about this and I didn't want, it's an important point that shouldn't be overlooked that a patent gives you the right to exclude others. It doesn't give you the right to manufacture that product. Uh, There may be some other patent owner that has uh, a patent that would prevent you from, that would exclude you. So just because you own a patent doesn't mean you have the right to do something. It, It gives you the right to exclude others from doing it. And this is an important point because one of the things that companies choose to do is they may not need to get a patent on the product. They don't want to spend the money. They don't want to go down that road. But they sure as hell don't want someone else to get a patent on the product. So even with a product that they may not go to market with, but they had this neat idea, but they sure don't want somebody else to go to market with it. One of the things that you can do is publish it, make it publicly known. Because once it's publicly known, you can't get a patent on it anymore. Mm-hmm. Prior art right. and it means that, that nobody could get a patent on it. Yeah. So a lot of times engineering groups and, and uh, in, inventors will, invent something. They The company decides not for us, but I sure don't want a competitor to do it. So they'll publish a paper that discloses everything about it so that nobody could get a patent on it. So yeah. at least they choose to go to market later with it. They're not going to be excluded from doing that.
0: Yeah. So it seems counterintuitive, but it also seems to fall in that category of things that are easy to do or can be extremely beneficial, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. So what kind, of, what kind of business
0: benefits have you seen from IP and some of the organizations that you've worked in?
1: Well, I'll give you a great example. We had a product that it was an antibiotic that dairy farmers loved. It was a triple antibiotic. It was approved by the FDA. It had a trademark name that, the dairy industry knew and knew well, and it was a type of antibiotic that had been uh, grandfathered in. It was no longer being allowed or sanctioned by the FDA, but as a maker of this particular product with FDA approval, we had the right to make it. But we were in the dairy equipment business, not the antibiotic business, and the people running the plant weren't the best at what they do, And the FDA did an inspection and shut down the plant and gave us a list of things we had to do to improve the plant and bring it up to spec. The business folks, the parent company said, that investment is too large for us. We're just going to shutter the plant and sell the real estate. And that was the direction I got from overseas to do. Mm -hmm. But we knew that dairy farmers knew our product and loved our product. We just couldn't make it. And we knew that because once the plant shut down, we were getting calls from dairy farmers saying, we need that product. We want that product. So despite the recommendation or the order to shutter the plant and sell the real estate, which we started to slow walk, we closed the plant, we got a real estate agent, we slow walked that. We made a number of calls to companies that were in the animal health field and saw if there was any interest in buying the plant, Mm -hmm. but more importantly, buying the rights to a product that the FDA has approved that no one else can make because it was grandfathered in under old rules, and licensing a trademark that we had registered that now became very valuable in the industry. Right. And we found several potential buyers. There was a small bidding war, and we put together a sale of the business along with a trademark license that generated over a million dollars a year in revenue for doing nothing. Right. Sales, percent of sales of that product. We signed an 11 year Uh, Royalty agreement. We did all this subject to the approval of our board overseas. And when we told them, Hey, I know you told us to shutter this plant, but we have a contract here that we can sell it for this amount and avoid a write-off. And we got a trademark license where we generate revenue. Mm -hmm. You can be rest assured that they agreed to go that route.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a very significant benefit across the board, right? From you know, potentially taking a loss to creating a, an ongoing <laughs> new revenue stream by rethinking about where your value really is, right? It was really in the formulation, not in the manufacturing.
1: Yeah, and, and, the, know, and the trademark, which the company, the people knew. They knew right. trusted that name mm-hmm. that was associated with that
0: product. So he had ongoing benefit from that, right? Yeah. So I'll just give a, one example. I was doing uh, another example. I was doing a startup <clears throat> inside of the U.S. bank and we thought we, and it was for, uh, a, a, an internet-based payment network, we thought we were doing something innovative. When we checked around, we, we, we realized we truly were. So we went out and obtained a number of business process patents and we were, you know, as as most banks are, they're either part of Visa, or MasterCard, or both networks, but, you know, our our goal was to not allow other banks to totally understand what we were doing, so they couldn't duplicate it, right? In other words, to kind of put some barriers to people who might follow us, and we're quite successful with that, and ultimately, really within a a four or five year period, built a multi-billion dollar business that Other banks could not emulate because we had covered ourselves pretty well, but we knew we did it up front, right? We didn't think about it later. We were like, no, we're going to, we're going to think and plan this business in a way to provide that protection. So it was, um, it was um, a good, good planning, good execution on the team's part, but Hey, Noel. So let's say somebody is like, okay, there's parts of today's conversation that, that might have resonated with someone and they want to follow up. What kind of resources are available for you? Talk about patent lawyers and uh, potentially other resources, but how does somebody actually go up, approach this? Because, you know, and we've made the point, right? No company is too small to, and you, you say, you've said it, you know, no company is too small to think big, right? And and we want people to think proactively and to generate the additional business benefits from IT. How do you, how does, what options does someone have to kind of take this conversation farther?
1: Well, I mean, what they need to do is just kind of take a step back, maybe have a conversation with uh, a, a lawyer. It doesn't have to be someone, doesn't have to be a patent lawyer. Sometimes they, they you know, you could just talk to someone like me who's a generalist, who's worked for a number of businesses that have these issues uh, face them because the issues cut across disciplines as we talked about. The HR department needs to be aware of some of these things. So when they hire, they have protocols with new hires. If you want to implement it in midstream while someone's already employed, there's some nuances there. But they should look at at what they've got. You you could do an intellectual property audit of your own business. What valuable IP do we have and how could we protect it and leverage it? You know, one of the, uh, another advantage of having IP and recognizing it is it's leverage, you know, if you get into a lawsuit, for example, and you happen to have uh, patents, you might cross license, if there's a patent litigation, you might cross license, give them some, some of your patents in return for a license to some of theirs Mm -hmm. and avoid excessive settlement dollars. So uh, it also, you know, if you have detectable IP, a great brand name that's actually protected so the art student doesn't come back and bite you, or a product where the manufacturer can't leave you to go to a a new entrant. If you have that kind of value, uh, you're going to be more valuable in the eyes of a private equity or an acquirer or or a strategic buyer that wants to buy you and integrate them into their business. Yeah, uh, so these are these are important steps. But to just get your arms around it, just have a conversation. Find a good lawyer who is just going to kind of chat with you and take a look at your template agreements. And if you don't have template agreements, draft you some. Some of these things in these practices, as we said, are easy to do. They're easy not to do, but they're easy to do. Doesn't take a lot of time and money to make the right investments. And they could pay off in the long run. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks, Noel. And if someone um, is wants to follow up with you directly, how best would they do that?
1: Well, they could reach out to me at um, Noel, N O E L, yeah. dot L Font, E L F as in Frank, A N T as in Tom, at gcpractice.com. All right. And I would. Uh, I'd encourage
0: you if you've got some questions or if there's some things that sort of perked your interest to please follow up. There's, this is such, um, such an opportunity for small and mid-sized businesses to pursue, and we hope we've provided you with a little bit of initiative and guidance in terms of how you might use IP um, to enhance your business model and your valuation, right? Because you're absolutely right. One of the things you said, Noel, was that you know private equity investment bankers... Um, Always looking for something unique, and and um, ultimately, if you decide to exit your business or sell it or bring in investors, they're going to be looking for IP. That's always uh, high on their, on their desirable list, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. Hey, Noel, thanks for joining me uh, today, and um, look forward to um, having you all join another episode of the Practical CMO.
1: Thank you.